You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I did an article... Um couple of years ago called rules for new science fiction writers and one of the rules was uh, if you're invited to read read uh, it's preferable to do it in a dry academic voice and uh, don't do voices unless you're Gan Wilson or John Crowley and I would add Jeff Ryman to that at this point I was revising I know I was thanking my lucky stars <laughs> um well, there's a number of things. Uh, I'm looking for a theme that kind of unites this, except for just really excellent writing. And that's such a generic term, but sometimes it kind of sticks out. Uh, like I say, when a lot of care, uh, everybody puts care into what they're doing, but uh, sometimes it comes out a little better. I think tonight's been kind of extraordinary. Uh, I've would like to have, a, do people have a question or comment they would like to raise? Otherwise, I will... Uh, just let our three authors introduce themselves and their concerns again, and perhaps. Uh, well, one thing that did strike me about all three is a sense of place, like what? a very strong sense of place. Well, they say they say that, that science fiction is a literature of setting. I heard that when I was first starting out, and that that. You know, your standard science fiction novel it takes place on another world, and so you you have to make the setting real for the reader. And if they buy that, that they will buy everything else. Mm. And in in my case, it's a real place, um, and all I do is go there and take notes and pictures. And yours yours is yours is also. I mean, both of those Canada, were real places. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Canada. No. So you, you made snow, that up, right? The snow and the shovel. <laughs> it, it was actually my front yard yeah. <laughs> and my green box. Well, I was thinking, I was thinking of the the second one yeah. that is also a a real place. Uh, it, it's made up, but it's got it's Caribbean landscape. Yeah. So yeah. And and you made up the Arctic. That was London. Yes, I should have described the street more. This more set in the Yeah, well, that's why I brought up Ballard. I should have said Ballard meets uh, Kingsley Amos in that one, but. Uh, one of the things I think that the, with, with the setting thing is it's if you're teaching writing you, you in science fiction writing you, you tend to to say it first in science fiction writing then then you realize it's something you have to tell the students that want to write mainstream stuff is you it's probably best to think of setting as a character because settings want things and s mm -hmm. settings prevent people from doing things and they're a tremendous source of conflict and in fact they have a will of their own but most importantly they change. And I'm, I, I really love it, like in, in John Brunner's Stand on Zanzibar, where there's a party in about 2008, and it's a fancy dress party, and you have to come dressed as the 20th century. And what mm -hmm. Brunner does is he tells you all the different fashions as things came in and out through his history of the 20th century, and it's a very different 20th century than ours. But you've got a tremendous sense in Brunner that the setting never ceases to change and always keeps evolving and always keeps pushing and changing its mind and moving on, which is not what you get from a lot of mainstream writers. Um, for example, and we were talking about this earlier today, Mark Twain, his picture of St. Petersburg, 
freezes a Missouri town uh, uh, in the 1840s or early 50s in Aspic. So you really feel like that little town has been like that for years. And if you read the history of Hannibal, Missouri, it was five log cabins in 1827. And, and 10 years later, it was a town with brick buildings. And five years after that, it was a town with incorporated town with stone buildings and the railway coming. And in fact, was this incredibly dynamic place that was changing a mile a minute. Um, and I, I th sometimes think that if you're writing science fiction and you're always thinking about how your setting got there in the first place, I think you do develop a, a much greater sense that your setting extends into the future and, and grows out of the past. And that's, of course, what you were doing in that. The reason we're getting these labs <laughs> is that we were able to see where all this was going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you know, you have, you're very, very aware that the setting changes and the people in it are wrong about things or are, are unconscious of the irony that, that we are aware of. Well, there's, I think there's, there's both uh, time and place as setting. Um, and the time is certainly certainly fluid, and the reader being in 2008, which is in 1946, the future, um, and is science fiction. I mean, it, the 21st century was maybe not going to happen. Um, but I, th but the geography is is almost more of a limiter. That there are, if if you are in a polar setting, you're not out there in a bikini for long. Um, if you are in a desert in the summer, you don't go outside for long. Um, you and and I the sense of place as as a character, but also as a character that puts limits on the other what the other characters can do and moves the action forward by being um, in the case of a desert an absolutely implacable um, obstacle. Uh, you can't. And you can't, and, it, and it's 60 miles to anywhere. So if you're a 14-year-old and all you have is a bike, you're not going anywhere mm -hmm. because you could ride all day and you'd still be nowhere. Um, and that is, at one point, there's one scene where Suze realizes that she is more trapped in this incredibly vast landscape than she was in Los Alamos with armed guards and barbed wire fences because she can't leave just as much, if not more, because she can see the horizon, but she can't get there. Well, in terms of setting, I mean, you set a lot of stuff in the uh, Caribbean, which is very an unfamiliar setting for both fantasy and science fiction, mm -hmm. or it was until you came down <laughs> the pike. So <laughs> me and Toby Bacall, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so what? Put, how how do you approach that question or deal with that? Um. When I left the Caribbean, I was 16 years old, so I, I, I deal with it um, through a lot of research and um, just checking in with people because there's a, a lot has changed. Speaking of change, I mean, the Caribbean that I left when I was 16 is not the place it is now. Um, I have to remember that the urban is just as urban as here, and, you know, um, I find myself to my chagrin trapped in that, that same notion that I'm talking about some place that's somehow backward. Uh, I have to keep reminding myself. And so uh, the last novel I, I finished was in some ways an exercise in reminding myself that you know there would be cell phones well, <laughs> you know, and have been for a very long time. They would be carved out of coconuts. <laughs> 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 Only well, in the ads. <laughs> well, I mean, Jeff brought up uh, Mark Twain, and, and that's also one of the trap uh, also of Southern writers in the U.S. Mm -hmm. they, they always try to make it sort of the past, you know, and, and uh, I was saying what you were saying about Twain, 
I like what you said about settings want things, and and I think that's most that's that's a very provocative thought. But thinking about the Mark Twain, the reason Hannibal uh, he presented it as fixed in time was that that was the myth of the South that this was an un that slavery was this unchanging society that had been there forever and had these classical roots and stuff. So I think to it a certain extent... change because it was actually God-given because it was all to do with Noah and Seth and Ham or something like well, that. Well, yeah, but... There's a, there's a brilliant bit in Puddinhead Wilson where they have a, a, a debate over Seth and Ham and they get them confused. And <laughs> um, Seth does not go well with biscuits. No. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's... What's happened is the son of the house has just realized that, that the, you know... One sixty-fourth black, but therefore Negro slave, has swapped him and his brother and his his ha and and right. her child in the crib, and he's actually the black child, and he's grown up to be. And because uh, Roxana is one of, it's about the only fully <coughs> respectful portrait of a black woman in white nineteenth-century literature. She's um, totally powerful and, and totally fearless, and she just lets him have it when he starts getting too spoiled. Just tells him you're black. <laughs> you know, don't get too big for your britches. But uh, I don't know what that's appropriate. I th I've, I've had a terrible thing. He was talking about the Caribbean. I've had in this book, um, you know, the, the CM Riep it's set in is actually CM Riep in 2002. And the publisher said, don't give it a date. And I said, have you been to Cambodia? <laughs> and they said, no, of course they hadn't. And I said, well, it's, it's just changing so quickly. And they said, well, you can't set it in 2000. So I set it in 2004. <laughs> and, and oh, you brave, brave and, man. And, and they kept saying, well, you know, and people saying, you know, oh, God, this metafictional stuff in a version of 2004. But, you know, Sihanouk is king. Uh, it's actually a fantasy version of Cambodia. And if you go to Siem Reap now, you will not, you will not be able to go to the Siem Reap that's in that book. Mm -hmm. I mean, by 2006, Siem Reap had moved on so much that it wasn't recognizably the same town. Yeah. And I cut lots of material, local local color. It was really and deserved to go. But the CM Rep I was describing, you would they sold the gas in roadside stalls. And uh, I thought they were selling you know things to drink because it was rows and rows of water bottles full of this fluid, and people were smoking as they said. <laughs> yeah. And what <coughs> beautifully immaculate Cambodian women in high heels and black slacks and you know beautiful nails and hair were basically, s that's how they sold their petrol. And it was dusty roadside, um, and I didn't see this happen, but apparently there was a microlight that ran out of fuel. It was a, an archeological oh. microlight. So he just landed in the middle of highway number six, went up to one of these uh, stalls. <laughs> they, to they, McDonald's. They, they went glug, 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 and it drove off. Um, <laughs> and that town does not exist. Um, the, 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 all the roads have been put into canals. They've been, you know, they've got sidewalks and and uh, they've they they've actually it's actually almost forced Cambodian removal by this stage mm -hmm. because it's so near the monuments. Um, so yeah, the settings completely move away from under you. It's it's partly why I often invent Caribbean settings because um, it changes so quickly. I. You know, wish I could go do the research, but that's not going to happen. Well, and it'll have changed by the time I write it. That's one of the reasons that I set almost everything I write in the past because it I find still well, get there. well I, I, nobody can get there um, <laughs> because although it is the future, our jetpacks and our time travel devices are really not functional. Um, although my iPod is getting close. Um, 
But I find this comfort in the past because it already happened. And it only happened, uh, there are lots and lots of perspectives to look at it from, but it pretty much happened in the chronological order that it did, and it's done. And so you can go back and, and use it as a fairly solid um, armature to build everything else on. Um, yes. and, and I try to look at it from perspectives that other people haven't necessarily, or that I haven't necessarily done it before. But I'm, because you can look up facts and when this happened and when this person died, when that, it's, that part is really solid and I like that about it because it's not quicksand. Mm -hmm. um, Whereas I kind of like, with the novel I'm trying to finish, <laughs> I kind of like messing with the past. Um, and part of the fun was, is taking stuff that, that is known, but what can I do to, to, to mess it up? So that story looks at what might happen if a community of runaways, and they weren't always all black, uh, and I try to bring that out in the story, if they were able to, uh, after that incident that I read, those folks don't get troubled again for 200 years. So what happens to that society? And I, I can take that, um, the past and sort of change a little bit of it and see, play what if in a different direction. So, so under your other name, you write another name, Neil Stevenson. <laughs> <laughs> and really, really quickly. <laughs> so no wonder you, you didn't finish those three novels, because yeah. you, you turned out that big book. That big <laughs> fat one, yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> sort of, uh, while we're talking about Ellen's book also, I was thinking, what, one of the things that I liked about it, in addition to the economy of the writing, was that in many ways it was, it was a template of science fiction from that period when one of its purposes was to educate the readers. And so in the course of that, I mean, in, in a way, that first chapter, I was thinking it's like an info dump. You learn what rocket fuel is. It's not gasoline. You learn what the V2 was for. You learn who discovered Pluto. You <laughs> and, and you discovered what the Blitz was all about. Just in, and, and that was, I, I liked that. I liked the way it was done. And hopefully you know. it wasn't an info dump. Because yeah. um, there's, I mean, it, there's a trick, especially when you're writing for well, if you're writing for anybody, because I have done this for an audience of, of adults saying, except for Jackie Robinson, name anything that happened in America in 1946 or 1947. And I get the same blank stares that you're all giving me now, because it is, yes? The new look. That was Paris. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but I mean, it, it is a period in American history in which nothing happens, because the 40s was the only five-year decade in American history. The war was over, and it's the 50s. Um, so there's this, I have to explain some stuff. Um, and because it's theoretically a children's book, I have, I'm trying not to like go, and as you know, Bob. Um, <laughs> but there's so much stuff that nobody knows. And once you get that down, then you know you can you can go and and, and riff on it and yeah well I didn't mean info dump in a bad way I know it's a pejorative <laughs> yeah, word it's, but it was you know a good info dump. I, no but I was Stan Robinson once said to me he said everybody complains about info dumps uh, that's one reason people read science fiction is for the info dumps well so. I was I was I was doing a, a workshop and there was a student who had a, a thing that was, it was an interesting premise and the first fifteen pages was the biggest info dump I'd ever seen in my life. And I kept saying, you really can't start a story this way. And she said, well, you know, people need to know this. And it's like, I understand that. But you need to, it's like making pie crust. 
You know, you need you mm -hmm. need to leaven the the butter and the flour and everything together so that you can't tell the difference between butter and flour. Um, and then and then you've got a good pie crust. And and I couldn't figure out how to get her not to do an info dump followed by one line of action, followed by a flashback, followed by more info dump. And it's like, really, there should be story in here some, somewhere. Some pie. Um, <laughs> and, and she said, well, they, but people have to know that. I said, yes. And the craft is the having the information come to the reader without the reader knowing it. With the, the, it comes as part of the story. Um, and if you're, if you're good, you don't actually hear the character say, as you know, Bob, um, Although the next thing I write, I think I'm going to have a character say that. <laughs> there, there, the title is going to be. There know. is, there is, among other Easter eggs, there is a character in this book named Mary Sue. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. But because, well, because. No. <laughs> Why do you ask? <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> how, how old is she? What part of the country is she from? Well, one of the reasons that, that the conversation that I think Harry's describing works is, is um, that the child concerned wants to know and wouldn't know and is in a situation where explanation is in order and that's one of the things that, you know, is, is, is requisite if you're going to have someone explaining something. Um, the other... There's all sorts of things you can say about info dumps. I mean, if uh, first off, you don't ever info dump until you make sure the, the audience really wants the information. And if you know, if you plant lots of hooks, which are simply questions that readers want answers to, then when you don't uh, give them the information, they're not going to be info dumped. They're going to be saying, "At last, mm -hmm. now I know they're sisters. Mm -hmm. I got it. Wow." As opposed right. to, and the seventeen think about plankton that we should know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you really, I really wasn't criticizing your story. I, I, but I just I know, realized. I know it was just no, the no, word, no. it was just the use of info. No, no, no. But what it was also, I was reading as an adult. I, I forget that that's a, a book written for young adults. No, I, I think was it reading isn't. it, it isn't. as just being marketed for young as adults. As that you were you were putting out information that the reader already knew because you were revealing something about the character. So I didn't see it as oh, an no. info dump, but as a that kind of structure, doing a riff on that structure. I, I didn't know they were using potato peelings to fuel the rockets. No, I, I thought that was the coolest that was, thing. <laughs> that's yeah. a vodka, like, it's you're vodka. Making yeah. it <laughs> you're making it up. Come on. You're making it up. Well, I didn't necessarily know that either. But. <laughs> yes. Um, another thing I noticed about all three of your, your readings was that you all used humor in a very different way. So I was wondering if you could kind of comment about using humor. How do you revise for humor? And I, I think with humor, revising for it often means cutting two-thirds of it out because mm -hmm. um, life is so prodigiously silly. <laughs> <laughs> Less is more. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't do slapstick well. For me, it, it's, it's, it's two things. One of them is I'm a lot funnier in person than I usually am when I'm writing. Um, and in this case, it's... It's a book about really serious topics. I mean, it's a book about genocide and concentration camps and slavery and and racism and all sorts of other children's book topics. And and in order not to feel like you're hitting somebody over the head with it, um, besides layering in the information, you've got to have like somebody stop and go, "Well, oh, that was stupid," <laughs> um, because you you if you 
because life is like that. I mean, even even in a serious situation, even if you're at a funeral, you know, your cousin comes up to you and says, Uncle Bob never looked that good. And you laugh and it and it's and it's a release of tension. And I think in a lot of cases you use I use humor in a scene where there's there's something very serious going on and then the next chapter is is lighter or somebody says something because otherwise it's because I don't want it to be that you know, I, I don't want it to be like Gunter Grass. Um, not that there's anything wrong with Gunter Grass. I just hilarious. don't particularly want to write like him. <laughs> not and, that there's anything wrong with that. And 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 so I, you know, I think I think that you use it in the same way that you use um, different line lengths or anything else. I mean, you you're you're breaking up breaking up the exposition, breaking up the dialogue. And one of the ways that I discover this is I, I read everything out loud. And you find out when you've got you know a big long thing followed by another big long thing, and you realize you need it to be like big long things, short short, a little bit longer. And if I don't laugh at it for like five pages, I'm thinking, oh god, this is tedious. Um, and it probably is. And so I go back and and I also want my characters to sound like real people, and real people are are going to be irrelevant or irreverent. Or both, um, because people in in people when they're talking to each other are are going to going to say things that are deadpan, and they're going to say things that they don't necessarily mean to say, and they're going to pepper their conversation with. All right, now that I've told you seventeen things about plankton, you want to get a drink? Um, and and it yeah, it just is. It breaks things up. What about you, Jeff? Have you ever tried putting humor in your work? <laughs> well, I was just going to say, you I think just use it, it to cover up the fact I'm a miserable git. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's something to that. Though. <laughs> 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 and it, it's a, the... Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. Terry, get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fisticuffs. But it's... Um, humor is how people get through tough shit and a lot of the fiction is about people being in trouble so there almost has to be humor I mean when you're in a war situation people make jokes all the time or they're going to shit their pants and run away they might be shitting their pants anyway but they, they joke and it's I think how we get through I stuff think and it is very much about pacing too I think Ellen's very yeah, very read the Iliad you'll hardest, laugh your head yeah the hardest thing though is is to write something that is just funny um, I mean, Connie Willis, I think, is really brilliant at this, and and very other few other people I can think of can Who write without any other values in their work. No, no, no. <laughs> that, that that actually write something that is humorous from from beginning to end. That is that is just funny, and the funny builds, and the funny builds, and the funny builds. And I can do it in person. I can't do it on paper. Um, I really admire people people that can, um, you know, th that that can can take, you know, and it's usually short bits, but. That have no higher ambition, you mean? No, yeah, yeah, they're godless, <laughs> godless whores. But um, you know, they. But it's, yeah. it, it's hard. It's hard to write to write comedy that is read. A comedy is 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 almost more of a spoken art form, and 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 requires an audience. And when you're in a room by yourself trying to figure out what's funny, it's it's really hard because you read it aloud to the cat, and the cat goes. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, it's it more is like sneezing, isn't it? Really, I mean, <laughs> you know, you know, you sneeze <laughs> because you've sneezed, and um, there's something wonderfully objective about humor. If people laugh, it's funny, and the most misshapen, lumpen, implausibly plotted thing um, 
is a roaring success and no one can say it isn't good if it's actually funny and loads of people laugh at it and that's it and it's uh it's, it's probably one of the biggest mysteries in writing i think you're right about yeah. reading it aloud um because a lot of it is timing and placement of words and and things like that uh, it, it's a good idea to read your stuff aloud at uh, revision stage anyway but particularly if you think you're being funny yeah um, <laughs> and it, the, other, the, di the difficulty is that you particularly when you're writing, you can think you've just written something deliciously, wonderfully funny because you can hear how it should be read. And a lot of the time people just say, God, this is so arch. <laughs> you know, instead of, you know, God, don't you just, it's so irritating. You know, why doesn't he stop trying to be funny? So Well, and the opposite of that is when you, you're, you've written something that it is, you know, poignant and, and beautiful and it's literature and the first time you read it, the <laughs> audience goes, <laughs> at a place that you don't, it didn't know was funny, and you sort of go afterwards, oh, okay, well, that was funny. Um, but you don't know until you, until you have an audience reaction what anybody else is going to do, and, and timing is absolutely everything. The, Max Broad did a, a sorry, uh, real quick, Max Broad <laughs> was a, a, a Kafka's biographer and wrote a lot about him, and the, one of the most revealing things he ever said is a description of Kafka doing a reading. And Kafka apparently <laughs> had the audience in stitches. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it largely is actually if people can hear the tone of voice you're writing in and get the timing that you hear when you write. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that does become a problem where I've found that I, I write something that, that I think is funny, and that is funny depending on which audience I read it for. But some audiences, there'll be one person who laughs and everybody else goes, Shh. <laughs> and that person sort of cringes into their chair and I eventually realized that people were trying to take me really, really seriously and decided that I, I couldn't be funny. I was a black woman. <laughs> Therefore, it must be very serious. And, uh, yeah, and you yeah. write literature. Yes, and I must be angry. And of course I am. <laughs> I am very, very angry and it's still funny. So <laughs> I've learned to take a break and wait for that one lovely person who will take the courage to laugh. And let the laugh happen. <laughs> there's nothing worse than, than hearing someone else like read an excerpt of your work and they blow the inflection <laughs> so that the line is just, yeah, or, or they, they're, they're running it all together. And, and you're thinking, no, really, when you, because, I mean, you're, you're one of the best readers I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. And you read everything that you've written as if it's theater. Um, and it's that sense of, I hear this in my head, and you know exactly where the, pauses are <laughs> and and somebody else reading the same line is just going to go you know exactly where the pauses are and and there's no yeah yeah have you uh, ever heard a play you've written yes be performed? <laughs> oh mean, yes I, I i've written a play i did i did it was called hernaldo i wrote it in sixth grade it was a parody of shakespeare and the teacher wrote on it this seems like a parody do you know what that means it's like <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, so that's how she got the finger marks around her throat. <laughs> <laughs> but but to, to backtrack slightly, what what somebody, but you were, I think, who said it? Something about um, hearing your stuff read and you get all the pauses wrong. Yeah. You write a whole play, and the very first time you hear the actors perform, you're going, no, it just doesn't sound like that at all. <laughs> and you know, if you're not a director, you you have a strong tendency to say, no, it sounds like this, and you, you, the actors are just going. 
side of my face. <laughs> That's exactly what I, the first time I ever had a play done. I was a friend of the director, and I made the mistake of going by a rehearsal, mm. <laughs> and it and it was a disaster. Nothing sounded right to me. Once it was done and it was on, they had it. But and uh, if you put in the stage notes, no. He said as if it was an ironic observation, uh -huh. and, and in a kind of a high-pitched voice while he was moving his arm. Oh. No! <laughs> and she, the, the director is just going to cut all that. I've heard audio books of my stuff, and um, I mostly don't listen to them anymore. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Don't do your own audio books. They won't Seriously. let me. They won't let me. You're kidding. No. Why, because you have an accent? Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, no, she's Canadian. <laughs> she, can, she can lie about that. No, but really. No, no but really, is that, is They've that, got that really files <laughs> on her. Well, they're not going to say that. Random House knows everything. <laughs> but they say, first, the, first, uh, the first company I auditioned for said my reading was not dramatic enough, and the next one said it was too dramatic, and I think if I sort of end up somewhere in between the two of those, it boils down to you read it like it's written and we're sure that Americans won't understand it. Mm -hmm. huh. And I think that's what's happening. Well, let me, let me uh, raise a question about, uh, now, in The Salt Roads, I don't think in too many of your books, but The Salt Roads actually used Jamaican Dixon, uh, diction or syntax at the beginning anyway, right? Midnight Robber did. Salt Roads, I kind of tried to I didn't know what the hell I was doing because I was writing people speaking Haitian Creole but translating it into English when I don't speak Creole, and it was 18th century English. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, so I there was, was something going on. <laughs> well, the you something. You always pick the easy thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the, th the something is kind of what I'm getting. Did you ever read Michael Thelwell? Do you know his stuff? Mm -mm. Uh, but he wrote, um, what was the famous Jimmy Cliff um, made a movie, <laughs> the famous regular? Harder they fall. Harder they come. Yeah, harder they, the harder they come or the harder they fall. Yeah. Come, come. Uh, Michael Thelwell, <laughs> who's a who's a uh, black novelist, I think an academic. Do people know this book? He wrote a novelization of it, which was actually much better than the movie. Amazing yeah. book, but it was written in this very strong Jamaican dialect without funny spelling, but mm -hmm. somehow it was done with syntax. And I remember the first, for the first five pages, I was kind of at sea. And then it began to work. And then I could read it as fast as anything else. And I was just wondering, um, I don't think uh, Ellen's done too much of that. I think you've done some. I wonder if people can, can I mean, that to me is, 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 it's a trap. It's hard to do. If it doesn't work, it's terrible. But it, sometimes you have to, if you can make it work, it can be great. Uh, that's my feeling. I've, I've got characters, well, there's two characters in this book. One of them is a Hispanic girl. And, and her grandmother, who is, whose English is, and then there's a, a German boy. And I didn't want to do the, well, we are coming to Thanksgiving, and we are going to eat your turkey. <laughs> um, These are Hispanics, or? No, that was the German boy. <laughs> but, but I also wanted, I, I, I also knew that, that without doing, doing some sort of horrible Mel Brooks dialect kind of thing. I wanted the syntax of, of the sentence to be non-standard English in a particular way. And so in, in both of those, those characters, it is, it is written in, in, in pretty much, there's no, there's no funny spellings, there's no anything, 
but the cadence of the speech in between German and, and Spanish and standard American English is all very different. The German is much more clipped. It is, it is very short sentences. And in this particular case, the boy was, was learning English, so there's, there's, a, a, there's hesitation of the uh, vocabulary. Um, and, and, you, and you kind of build that in. And, and with the, the Hispanic grandmother, it's, there's, it, it's much more fluid. Um, it, the sen and, and it's just, you, you hear it in your head, and this is where, again, reading it aloud, it's, it's like theater, you, you hear it in your head and you, and you I without doing the accent or with doing the accent, you try to find the fluidity of the sentence. And you try to find whether it's, it's choppy, whether it's, it's, it's very smooth, whether there's, there's word usage that is slightly flipped from what standard English would be. Mm -hmm. And that saves you from doing dialect because a reader when saying, boy is German, when you read the dialogue, you hear a German voice in your head, even though I'm not writing it in with, yeah. you know, the, all of the, we are going to, we are going to eat you now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. how do you deal with that? Well, it's my language, so it's easier. So Seems like it would make it harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also coming from a, a, a Caribbean literary tradition of a, a political tradition of privileging Caribbean ways of speech and um, getting them on the page, even though they're, they're oral literatures. So one of my dad's friends was Kamal Brathwaite, who's one of the people who's pioneered that. Uh, and so I grew up in that atmosphere, politicizing the language and, and saying, it's okay, it's actually you know a working tongue and, and we can use it. Um, more of an equivalent for what Ellen's talking about would be my short story, Writing the Red, where the character is um, an English peasant woman from I don't know what, maybe 14th, 15th century. Um, and that trying to get that voice is a matter of cadence and vocabulary and um, being very, very thankful that my dad was a Shakespearean actor. <laughs> and I, I, even a, a trickier bit is when you then read that aloud to an audience. Um, mm. Basement Magic is, is written in... Uh, it's a, a black woman is the main character, and I am, as you might have noticed by now, not a black woman, and <laughs> and I could hear I could hear the voice in my head, and I was trying to get it on a paper. But the first time I read it, I read it in character, and I was thinking, oh please God, I hope I pull this off because if if I don't, it's offensive. Um, I've got another story in the collection called Guys Day Out that has a retarded character. Um, my sister has Down syndrome, and within the family, we have the Sally voice, and we don't usually use it in public because people will stare at you. But when I read that story, it is it is written in that character's voice. And the first time I read that, I thought, boy, if I don't pull this off, I'm in I'm in even deeper trouble because I'm people are gonna people are gonna walk out. And in and in fact, I it is written. I, it, both of them were written with respect for for who the peop the people are, but also with the idea that they speak differently than I do. Um, and so when I read them, I'm in character, um, and it seems to work. But and you Jeff do Jeff's the, amazing. You, yeah, you're you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because <laughs> no, no, I don't even try. Um, I, uh, that people find it hilarious. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, mimicry is actually, the, I think, the core to just narrative because you, you, 
Often, you don't start with an incident or an idea or a speculation you know, on a fuel rocket with potato peelings. You start with a tone of voice and a flavor, and that's um, you know, the most important act of mimicry is the sound of the narrator, even if it's not first person. In, in third person, there's still got to be a tone of voice. There's still has to be a way of true. writing. And you're mimicking a, a tone of voice that you hope people can hear, and that carries a lot of the impact. So it's, it's actually... You, you, you will not really, you might, I don't think Dostoevsky was that good at dialogue, you probably <laughs> won't be a very good writer if you can't do dialogue because the being able to write dialogue means you can do all the other mimicry that's involved. And I think it's a, it's, it's, I think it's a core skill. And I, um, you know, you sometimes run across when you're teaching writing people who just can't do that. And what happens, how it shows up isn't so much in their dialogue, it's when the character feels something the language doesn't use the language that they would use. You're kind of explained or told what the character's mm -hmm. feeling from t far too outside because there isn't that mimicry. The, the word choice isn't right. The cadence yeah. of the sentences mm -hmm. don't come from that person's heart. I am morose. Yes. Yes, yes. She said and sadly. <laughs> and lots of, of stamping of fists on... Does I want to dig in this or change its direction or <laughs> add some intelligence to it? Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, I think that that's, that's, that's the tricky bit because y there's a, a rule of thumb that you, you know, you, you shouldn't use adverbs. And I've had students say, what's wrong with adverbs? And, and it's like, there's nothing wrong with adverbs. But if you have, you know, if you have a sentence with the adverb, try writing it without and see if you can make the action tell the reader what's going on. So, you know, instead of she shut the door angrily, you say she slammed the door. And it's a stronger sentence, and it gives exactly the same information without you telling the reader. Um, and that's the sort of thing that beginning writers, you know, it's like, no, it's, there's nothing wrong with adverbs. But when I'm, when I'm going through a last draft, I will go through, and I, every sentence that has an adverb, I, an L-Y adverb, like, <laughs> that, that's actually a, a Tom Swifty, um, I will look at it and try to figure out if I can live without it. And... 90% of the time I can, and I think that it tightens everything. Um, and, then, and then there are times when you just, it's shorthand, um, and it works. Yeah, I think adverbs are like salt. It, you, you only, too much of them, and, and you know the difference. And I think actually- And not enough of them, and it's, and it's bleh. Bleh. Yeah, and I, th <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, uh, an example like you just used, you know, she shut the door angrily versus she slammed the door. She slammed the door actually gives you more information. What if she didn't slam it? What if she just angrily shut the door? <laughs> well, then you would say something else. <laughs> where, you need, where you need the adverb is if she's slamming the door out of sheer high spirits. Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's whoopee! You know. <laughs> and then you might need the adverb yeah. to highlight the, sound the difference. Effect. I mean, it, 
It, it's exactly what Alan said. It, it, it usually means you haven't selected the right word, and the adjectives are often the same. You've got this really boring verb, or this really boring noun, or this really boring something, and they slap a whole bunch of adjectives on it, and you think, nope, actually, just find the right word. It's a, or, or you can have, she shut the door. Damn, she said, now I have to replace the doorknob. <laughs> <laughs> and that tells you something about how she shut the door. And, you know, and yeah, it's my experience. I have a, I've done a little bit of teaching, not a whole lot, but my experience has been actually that uh, novice or kids that are just thinking about trying to learn to write are actually better at dialogue than I had imagined they would be, and actually tend to write in scenes from watching so much television that people. Uh, people sort of instinctively break things down into scenes and tell a story that way, which is a lot of dialogue instead of uh, through narrative. Have you ever had, do you have the experience, Jeff, with? Well, I think most people do, yeah, they have a, an instinct for scenes, but th you'll also have an instinct for scenes in, in just from reading fiction too, because that's where they most resemble each other, films and, and novels and short stories, in that they have scenes. You know, you, you, you glide swiftly, you dissolve or you cut, and then you go to a bit where it's more or less played in real time. And that's that's the scene, and then you pull out of it, and you dissolve, and you summarize, and you you on to the next. I, I think you're right. I think they have a strong th they understand scenes, but exactly as Ellen said, you tend to get um, the flashback within a flashback, or they have an amazing rate long throat clear at the beginning of the story, and you think you know that was just a cough. This story really starts here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's actually usually a, a, a kind of structural problem, and as you said exactly, they 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 want. It's almost like they're writing notes to themselves, so they're they're they're, they're getting all the information stored, all their ducks lined up, yeah. before they actually start telling the story. Yeah, I was just I was talking to a seventh grade class last week, and they were they were doing uh, novel writing month. Um, they were doing oh it in God. groups of five and novel writing month. And <laughs> and the question that I kept getting from them is. Have you ever written a novel with four other people? It's like, fuck, no. <laughs> I didn't say fuck. But um, but it's like, no, really, this isn't a good idea. And yet, you know, you, you can work with it. But they would they would ask questions like, uh, you know, I'm supposed to write this, this chapter, and it's only a paragraph and a half long, and I'm done. I've been working and, on it all day. And, and, and I would say, well, you know, what's it about? And they would start telling me. And I'd go, well, have you thought about this and this and this? And they'd go, oh. And, and I would say, you know, there's one kid who said, you know, there's this scene where this guy wakes up and he's tied to a tree. And I said, well, have you tied yourself to a tree? And the teacher looked at me and the kid looked at me and, and, and I said, no, really, if, you know, if you have a friend that you really trust, have them tie you to a tree. <laughs> Because you're going to get in trouble. This yeah, is my yeah. seventh graders. Well, I yeah, kept explaining. I mean, this was a historical <laughs> thing about Joaquin Marietta. And, 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 and I was explaining. It's like, okay. A, you need to know what it feels like because you need to know what, how, you know, how, what are your elbows like? And Nude. Ask your and priest. He'll help. And, you know, how, <laughs> how, what does the bark feel like against your shirt and how much of it can you feel through your shirt? And, and, you know, is there part of you that's more uncomfortable than other? And in this case, there were yeah. bad guys coming to get him and saying, okay, you're against the tree and the, you know the bad guys are coming. Well, the bad guys also know that you're tied against a tree. And if you split back and forth, I said, watch a movie sometime that has a lot of tension in it and see how they split from the thing that the, the reader or the watcher knows both of these things. And the bad guys don't know that this is going on. And the good guy doesn't know that this is going on. And you can play off of that because the reader knows both of them. They're going, no. It's just, and the kid's looking at me and went, tension. I never thought about tension. 
And I said, your character's tied to a tree and people are coming to kill him. <laughs> I don't know. I'd be yeah. feeling tense. I, and, and it just, you know, but it, it's that kind of thing. You know, you, you use whatever you can to get, your, to get the characters as real as they possibly can be. I think we have this sense that, that fiction is about plot. It's about what happened and then what happened and then what happened. And I've started to think about that's actually misspelled. There's a D on the end, not a T. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that happened. <laughs> and then that happened. <laughs> and then what they leave out is what the bark feels like against your wrists and how long it's been since you've had a pee and, you know, that yeah. kind of thing that actually does grab the reader. <laughs> I mean, when, when in Jeff's piece, when uh, one of the sisters says, you know, do you want a pair of mitts? I was like, yes, give her some mitts because <laughs> I've been that person in that, you know, cold environment for the first time and nobody seems to think twice about what you actually need because they're used to it. <laughs> Whereas for me in that piece, it was, it's just a grape crunch. And then, you know, you, you, in, in beginning writing classes, they say, you know, remember your five senses. And all, all writers will deal with the visual stuff. And if you're, if you're, you know, in the next level up, you'll deal with what they can hear. Five senses? Al almost. <laughs> I know, I always get stuck on four. <laughs> Raspberry. One, two, three. Yeah. And, and, but, you know, you, you, there is texture. And there, and there is, and what I will frequently go through is go, go through something that I've written and go, okay, so she's smelling, she's, oh, she doesn't smell anything. Well, where is she? Okay, she's, you know, in, in the desert. Yeah, she can probably smell something. Or she's in a basement. Yeah, you can smell something. But there's always texture. And there may or may not be taste, but there's there's at least the sensation of air on your body. Is it cold air? Is it warm air? Um, are, is it a hard surface? Is it a soft surface? And the more you I can get that into the description or even the dialogue, um, the realer it is for the reader who knows exactly what it's like to sit on a, a step in the winter and have you know, the snow coming through your jeans and you're going, I got to get inside soon because my butt's numb. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, even writing for kids, you know, going, my butt's numb. And they're going, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it is, you, we, we, we are so visual and, 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 and so hearing oriented that the idea that there's these three other things that, are, that should be going on in a character. Not and that's what mov moves things forward sometimes. Well, I, I do, I mean, in defense of plot, Whenever I've seen a, stu a student really grind to a halt, it's because they don't have a plot and they haven't worked through the chain of cause and effect and they're stuck. You know, I have one case, this really nice story, but it, it, it was a science fiction story with them. They always have the worst plots to work out. And he just couldn't get the, the time the space trip happens and when the, it's supposed to be two generations. He just couldn't work it out at all. And the story just died on him. And uh, I think the uh, plot's, plot's funny. I don't, I think, I think the difficulty is when people think the plot comes first. I think the, the yeah. tone of voice comes first, right. the imagery comes first, the yeah. flavor comes first. The characters. These moments that you see, the way the characters talk, yeah. they start yeah. to But in the end, there is a moment when you have to say, okay, what happened mm -hmm. and why? Yeah, that's and true. it's yeah. not the story. It's something completely different from the story because it's in this, as you say, numb, totally chronological cause and effect. Mm -hmm. She wants, and so she does, but this happens, and so she does that, but she forgot about X and Y, and that makes, you know, and, and, and it's very boring and very dull, and it's probably the last thing you actually sort out. Yeah, or and the first. Uh, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I will have a character, and I will think, okay, what does she want? She wants this. What's gonna get in her way? It's gonna be that. 
how do you get there? And it's and it's not more than than a real. I mean, I don't outline, but it's it's one of those. It's like you know, three popsicle sticks lined up in a row, and you go, okay. So I have to. The, I, I start here, I end here, and there has to be this beat in the middle, um, and everything else is is character driven. I was also told though when I was in my. I think I was in college, um, by somebody I trusted a lot, that I would never be a writer because all I had going for me was my facile surface charm, which was considerable, <laughs> but wasn't really going to be enough. And so I should really <laughs> learn to plot because I was never going to do anything with any like literary depth. And uh, this is why I didn't write until I was in my 40s. Um, but I... I th- thought of plot as as being that you know like last refuge of scoundrels and in <laughs> fact i think jeff's right Je- i mean you you do have to have a structure for the story and things have to happen but i think it mostly comes out of except for the the basic shape of you know book starts here book ends here stuff has to happen in the middle it it all comes out of character but you can't have a plot without character i mean the, the, no. the plot will start with mm-hmm. With somebody wanting something. No, but but, but when I f- was first starting writing, and a lot of beginning writers, they start with with plot, and then it's like you can sort of pin the character onto it as if it's as if it's a paper doll, and you can go plot plot plot, it, and and it's wearing the green dress. But <laughs> you know exactly that. You know, kind of advice that says, well, you know, start with your character shoes, and you can't. You know, it, 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 there is that kind of approach that with the characterization where where you get the poor sod and they've written a whole backstory to their character. It's a bit like people who spend the first five years writing their fantasy novel inventing the world. And the map. Um, and, and the, the map, map. Drawing the map, yeah. yeah. And, you know, <laughs> people who want to do literature will do you know, a lot, lot of back stuff, but sometimes, sometimes they will do a lot of back stuff on their characters that you know they're never going to use and they're completely irrelevant. And, you know, or they're maybe they're doing the world. Um, the, the trouble with this kind of stuff, I guess, is that you're really just getting on the bicycle and cycling, and it happens all at once, and all these different kinds of elements that we define and tease out. Actually, yeah, yeah, it's we're funny. actually it's, lying it's, through that's our kind teeth. Kind of how I work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know more about my. I mean, I probably know you know 100 percent more about my characters than ever appears on the page, mm-hmm. because I they have to be real. Mm-hmm. It's funny. This turn. Um, this has turned into like craftsmanship 101. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's true. It's the stuff you. It's the stuff you deal with day to day. And the thing I found in also in dealing with students was the hardest thing is timeline. They all have a, an idea. You're talking about flashback and a flashback. Yeah. As somehow the plot will work itself out if you can just get people to, to deal with the timeline. You know? Speaking of which, I think we're getting the signals that uh, <laughs> we should probably get a couple of comments if anybody's got them. Yeah. Um, I can't think of a way to phrase it because the question is so ironic. Oh, no. <laughs> Spoilers don't matter. But if your book is completely plot-driven, then if you learn what happens, there's nothing left. There were a lot. I, 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 the, the new book I wrote with some, like, dun-dun-dun kind of <laughs> reveals, and the first, f- like, three reviews revealed it all. Mm-hmm. And, and I was really kind of annoyed until my editor said, children don't read reviews. <laughs> um, <laughs> And and you know librarians don't don't care because they're you know it's and, and but I'm thinking but I spent so much time setting up 
that this was a surprise and 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 there it is and it's and I guess it doesn't matter. Um, no, no. Children don't read reviews, and librarians don't read books. Yeah. So, <laughs> but <laughs> but I but I also think that that if you know there are there is character development that is a worse spoiler. When you you know you have a character in the beginning of the book that is is you know a monomaniacal asshole, and by the end of the book they're a nun. That you know you. There's there's a great deal of character development that happens in there, and if you say, and by the end of the book when she's a nun, you're going, ah, no, because, you know, it's, so it's, I don't know how I feel about it. It's spoilers. true. I mean, I, people ruined Jane Austen for me by t- telling me there was always a marriage at the end. Yeah. And so, you know. Which, but it's it's one of the differences in short stories. It's hard to have a spoiler with a short story because they're short. Um You don't go to the movie. Well, you you don't go to the movie, but I mean, you get suspense when you know what's going to happen. I mean, uh, another besetting fault of uh, for me of of, of the younger writer is they think they've got to surprise, and um, only two things can happen to surprise: you guess it or you don't. And if the only point of it is the surprise, then (laughs) either way, it, it feels. A little bit strange. It's a cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> so you need to, you, you do need to tell. You need to, so you, people need to have a sense of what's coming. And the fact that you know that boat's sinking is the only thing that got me through that <laughs> boring, <laughs> horrible love story. Well, I, no, that's your wife with that iceberg. I also think that, if, that in, in the hands of a, of, a, of a good writer, the fact that the reader knows what's going to happen is how you create the tension. Because the reader knows that the boat's going to sink. They don't necessarily know quite how or quite when, and they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so yeah. you can play on that if, you're, if, if, if you know that the reader knows. Then you, then you build that into the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, but... You, yeah, you know the OK Corral is coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or any... any most fiction has a happy ending. You you know that your protagonist is probably going to survive. So it's the getting there that's the fun. It's, it's supposed to have a happy ending. <laughs> Did you have your hand raised, Elizabeth? Yes, I did. It was historical fiction. You almost have that. Um, I, I think of it as an opportunity to give the reader tension gratuitously with historical events. You know, they're aware of that. They're known. Well, in the Green Glass Sea, Well, in the Green Glass Sea, I, it, it, World War II ends with the atomic bomb, and you all knew that. Um, and the first time, the first time I, I read, I read the la- I read the last chapter, and I just asked the audience. I said, "Is there anybody in the room that does not know how World War II ended?" And they went, "No." And I said, "Okay, fine. I'm reading you the last chapter." For kids, though, it there is there is a tension because they don't actually know what the gadget is, which I didn't know when I was writing it. Um, but there's also the tension of what's going to happen once the thing that you know is going to happen happens. What's going to happen to all these people? Because if, you're, because if you set it up that when this happens, everything will change, then the tension doesn't become what's going to happen plot-wise. It's what's going to happen to these people when, when that happens. Um, and it's a, it's a different, yeah, historical fiction has its own thing because 
we are all in the future, and we're just looking back. Hitchcock had two examples. Um, the first one of something that works was from his own Anatomy of a Murder, where he said the, the audience absolutely knows that when the phone rings, Grace Kelly's going to pick it up, and the man her, her husband is hired to kill her is going to jump out and, and attack her and try and kill her. And we know that, and there's a whole shtick around the phone ringing, and he can't get through, and the, you know she's busy talking on the line, et cetera. But we know he's going to get through, and that's the signal for the killer to strike. But he said, uh, what then has to happen is it has to, ha it has to happen, or you'll disappoint the audience, but it has to happen in a way they're not quite expecting with a result that's fresh to them. Definitely. And of course, what happens in Anatomy of the Murder is she's been opening letters, there's a pair of scissors, and she turns around and kills the person who's attacking her. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes, oh my God, she'll find what. He said he learned that when he did a version of Joseph Conrad's A Secret Agent, in which a kid is carrying a bomb. He's a, a terrorist, and he's carrying a bomb that you know is going to go off at some point. And you know, he's sitting having his hair cut and is the bomb gonna go off in the barber shop? And he's doing something else. The bomb bomb gonna go off while he's waiting for the bus. And is the bomb gonna go off when he has this or does that? And then finally he gets on a bus and the bomb goes off. And he, he he suddenly realized that the audience was completely disappointed because all that happened after all that build up was exactly what they thought that was gonna happen. <laughs> the little kid gets blown up. Um and a whole bunch of people die. And it's, uh, <laughs> and? Uh, <laughs> why did you put us through all of that? Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a, the manipulating tension and building up tension is, is, is an art. It's like in horror movies. All you have to do is have the boy in the red shirt open a door. And everybody in the audience is going, oh, God, it's going to get. And if, he, if it doesn't, the audience is like, well, huh? Okay. So it wasn't what I expected. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> We kill Terry, <laughs> and 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 then and then you've got the audience because you're 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 taking their expectations and playing them off, and but you have to know what the audience's expectations are in order to do that. And what we got to do now, this is a good discussion, but what we got to do now is uh, Basson books and Samson books. Our people are they all want to and, and we'll answer questions out and there. And yeah, we. Yeah. Uh, I will kiss your feet if you buy my book. Jeff will kiss. kiss your feet if you buy my book. Jeff will kiss Nalo's feet if you buy my book. Okay. <laughs> not kiss Nalo's feet at any time. Just, oh, who just hasn't? Say the word. You just know. say the word. Well, I know, but you know. know. That you're Canadian. <laughs> How do you think we keep our toes from getting frostbitten exactly. up there? You know, we, we kiss each other's feet. You're in San Diego. And you know, you do that often enough, and it's the best cure for athletes' feet. It's just. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> on that note, get on our mailing list. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>